Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we are talking with John Kelly, a professional endurance athlete and now two-time finisher of the Barkley Marathons. We get his thoughts about the media attention and public perception surrounding the race, what draws the general public to our sport, his views on using intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation for high performance, creating the ideal Barkley athlete, and why he's interested in going after the Appalachian Trail FKT in the future. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Rabbit. In my humble opinion, Rabbit makes the best apparel in our sport. If you are in the market for new kit and you want to support Singletrack in the process, please use code SINGLETRACK20 on their website at checkout to get 20% off your next order. With that, let's get started. John Kelly, welcome to the Singletrack podcast. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. There have been a lot of takes on what it takes to finish Barkley. There's this idea that it helps to have a, uh, a left brain disposition that's gotten a lot of runway. Uh, but you had a comment a few years back that I want to resurface here. You suggested that no one who is primarily extrinsically motivated will ever finish Barkley. And that is fascinating to me. And why do you believe this to be the case? Everyone reaches that point out there where, it, you know, you're going to hit a wall. There's going to be every part of you that is uh, telling you to stop, telling you to sleep, take a nap, whatever it is. And there is just, uh, in my opinion, there's there's not enough extrinsic motivation in, in the world. There's, there's not enough tweet likes or Instagram likes or, or any of that, nothing is going to push you past that point. Uh, so it, it has to come from, from within and it has to be something more than that and, and something that, that you're passionate about getting done. And that's, you know, I've struggled with that myself kind of in my roller coaster of, of attempting it six times. I've, I've seen all levels of that motivation going into it. And do you think that that's unique to Barkley? Because obviously there's a baseline level of difficulty to this sport, but I still imagine that there have been plenty of great performances at races like UTMB and Western States, et cetera, that have been fueled by uh, external validation. So yeah, what do you think about that? Is it a Barkley thing or yeah, where do you, where do you take that? I, I think that at nearly anything to be your absolute best, there has to be an internal passion and fire to, to get to that point. Uh, UTMB, Western States, uh, all of those, you can have incredible performances with, with extrinsic motivation. It, it doesn't require you to be at your absolute best and push past your absolute limits just to finish. And, and so, you, you know, you might have a great performance it might not be as good as you could possibly have if you had that uh, internal fire and, and passion. But I, I do believe that at those races as well, uh, to, to be your absolute best, you need that. And the, the primary difference is at Barkley, you need that just to finish. One of the reasons why I'm so interested in this philosophical question is because we just had another person on the podcast one episode ago, a guy named Jack Kenzel, who just set the FKT on the Bob Graham round. And I'm, I'm not sure if he takes this as gospel, but it was his opinion that a lot of the, the greatest 
performers, whether it's in sports or business or politics, whoever's rising to the very top, I think his current worldview is that they are fueled by the external. And I think this is probably part of that whole debate about like, are humans fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? And I think this whole, this is another variation of it where are we intrinsically or extrinsically motivated when we're at our best. And so um, I think it's very interesting that you fall into the intrinsic camp. Yeah. And, and it, it completely depends on the challenge and on the rewards uh, you know, a lot of what fuels our world is is money and, and riches, and uh, those, of, of course, are external uh, motivations in themselves. So if your your goal starting off is, is to make a lot of money, uh, then you're going to get a lot of feedback uh, and, and fuel for that by, by external motivation. Uh, Barclay, there's, you know, there's, there's no prize purse. Uh, sure, I got a few sponsorship deals and free shoes coming out of it. Uh, but it's it's nothing to, to that magnitude. I will say that I've discovered the past few years, there's there's really a, a third type of, of motivation, to, in my opinion. So there's the um, <clears throat> there's the extrinsic, the stuff that comes from from the outside in. There's the intrinsic that, that comes from the inside and stays there. And then there's the kind that, that comes from the, the inside and and goes out. And, and so many of these things I did in the past few years in the UK that were supported efforts uh, like the Bob Graham round uh, and, and some extended multi-day adventures I had there. I'm, I'm out there in the middle of the night in horrible conditions uh, running through this train, every part of my body wanting to stop. And I'm thinking, you know, these these other people, they they drove out here like on their own time to meet me at some remote mountain pass at 3 a.m. in terrible conditions and rain and wind, all to like follow me around and feed me jelly babies and stuff as I continue on. Like I can't just stop. Like <laughs> Those people are out there waiting for me, and and I can't make that be for nothing. So that that has been another very powerful uh, mm-hmm. source of motivation for me that I found. You just finished your second Barkley ever, and you've been at this game for seven or eight years. The reason, I mean, I'm interested in that for many reasons, but with this next question, Laz has said before that he can judge whether a runner will finish based on their application essay. And I'm wondering, what did you write in your application essay this year that led to this finish? This year, I, I don't recall. Um, to, to be honest, it's uh, <clears throat> my my first year. That was very much uh, speaking a bit to my running background and a bit to my running credentials, but also my, my connection to that land, my connection to those mountains. Uh, and the the sense of motivation and, and purpose that that gave me to, to be able to go perform there to represent the community and so that was a huge part in my opinion of, of how I got in to begin with I, I got into my first Barkley um, before the, the documentary before it, it got to be a huge thing um, but it's it, it, you know that, that was that was huge for me 
Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pulling up my essay from, from this year. Awesome. <laughs> to, I love it. I love it. To, to see what I said. Um, so I, I kind of explained to him, um, you know, to, to summarize that, that, you know, it's, it's been six years since, uh, there's, there's been a finisher, uh, and, uh, to, in this time I've, I've kind of transformed. I've, I've grown. My relationship with, with Barkley has grown. Uh, and it's something that I've come to passionately enjoy and, and not just in the sense of wanting to finish, but, but to be out there and to experience the race and to help other people on their way to, to finish. And so whether it's me that is, is going to be a finisher or it's someone else that is out there, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a part of that. And I'm going to be able to, to help that person uh, get to that point. So that's, that's the really cool thing for me with where I am at the race. It's, it's not this sort of all-consuming, uh, I, I must finish or else type thing. It's, it's a genuine enjoyment of the experience uh, and, and helping others reach their goals out there as, as well. I have to ask about this as well. As I was following the race on Twitter, like almost everyone does, I noticed that someone was either managing your Twitter account or you were scheduling tweets and they seemed to be coming out in accordance with each lap you finished, which takes a lot of courage because you're effectively betting on yourself to finish the race. Were, were you scheduling those tweets or was somebody managing the account for you? Uh, so I, I had a, a number of scheduled tweets, a couple of scheduled Instagram posts. Uh, Maggie Guterrell also had my accounts and, and made some additional posts during the race. Um, but yeah, there, there were some that, that came out, uh, kind of referencing where I should be in, in the race <laughs> at that point that they were scheduled. Uh, a couple of them, you know, there's one in particular that, that essentially I, I said, I, I haven't known for the past six years, whether I have the fire and the motivation to finish again. A lot of people have asked me that I never a hundred percent knew myself until now. And, and that came out sometime in the fifth loop. Um, which that was intentionally vague. The answer to that, uh, could have been no. Now I know that I don't. Um, but, uh, it was, it was something that it, it was a bit motivating to me to think about that while I'm up there out there that like, yeah, this, this is coming out. There's no stopping it. It's, uh, you know, even if I quit, I pulled out at that point, I, I couldn't have gotten to a computer in time to stop that. Um, so yeah, those, those were, uh, scheduled well beforehand. It was brilliant. And I, I can't think of any similar example in any other sport or from any other athlete in our sport who has attempted to narrate their own race ahead of time. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And now it makes me wonder, uh, who is going to be the next person to do this? Will it be for Barkley? Will it be for something else? But I think it's a brilliant format because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit instructive into how maybe, the fan and anyone else should be interpreting where your mind's at, at that stage of the race and how you personally feel. So I just, that stood out to me. Yeah. It's, it's a bit tough for Barkley more so than other races because you, you don't know the starting time. And so the starting time can be anywhere between midnight and noon. Uh, and, and so I, I kind of had to schedule them 
assuming that the start time was noon so that nothing went out before the start. Uh, but, you, you know, that, that makes it to where some of the, the later tweets, it could be at the end of the race or it could be at the start of loop five. Uh, it's, it's tough to say. One of the things that I've appreciated about you over the last seven to eight years that you've been focusing on this Barkley race is how much insight you have included on your blog for fans and fellow runners to consume. There's usually a race report, a training report. There's some data science musings around each year. And I want to get into that last part here, first talking broadly about applications to our sport and, and given your numbers background, what are some interesting I'll call them patterns in this ultra running life to you. Like what data do you pay attention to in preparing for a race like Barkley that might not be obvious to the common runner like myself? Well, um, not, I, to be honest, I don't obsess as much about the data as I used to. I, I still look for, look at it. I, I look for trends. I look for ways to improve, but I think initially, and this is this has been a big trap for for Barkley training for a long time. People got obsessed with vert and just like, oh, I got into Barkley, I need to go do forty thousand feet of vert every week, and that was my initial plan. Uh, Two thousand fifteen, the first time I got in, I had no idea what I was doing, and just I came home, I pulled up Google Maps, so I tried to find like every tiny little hill in my neighborhood because I didn't live in the mountains. And you said, I'll go run that hill and then I'll go run that hill and I'll do repeats on this other one. And I was obsessed with getting enough vert uh, leading into Barkley. And that was um, that was with me for a while until I, at this point now, I don't, I kind of just maintain my fitness as best I can. Uh, my, my coach, David Roach, helps a lot with that. Mm. And then going into a race, I again, I, I tune it for that race. I try to get everything lined up the best that I can based on how I've done in the past, based on uh, what things I've found helps me in the past as far as, you know, eating in the week leading up to the race, trying to get more sleep, um, that sort of thing. But I... I really try not to stress about minute details and the, the moment that that really kind of smacked me in the face was the, I believe the 2018 lookout mountain 50 miler where my kids had passed around a stomach bug all week. I thought I was home free. And then I spent the night before the race in the hotel bathroom, just not, not pretty. I uh, couldn't eat anything the, the morning of uh, all of my plans, all of these minute kind of over-engineered details that I, I had uh, all out the window. And what it did, it forced me to run a smart race. It forced me to go out relaxed and do my own thing. I took the lead at like mile 34. And it was one of the, the best races that, that I've ever run as a result of that. Mm. It seems like there's a lot of great camaraderie amongst the athletes that return to Barkley year after year. Yourself, I think of Jamil Curry, I think of Harvey Lewis, you know, the list goes on and on. You mentioned that there was this personal realization where your ideas on how to best train for Barkley were sort of revolutionized. Has the state of the art in general 
changed? Has the perspective about how to, how to train to be successful for this race changed in concert? Or is this just you? I think there has been a, a bit of change there. Um, a bit more focusing on, on people needing to maintain their speed uh, and not go out and just power hike up and down a hill uh, for hours every day. Uh, vert is, is definitely still important, especially in the couple weeks, uh, two or three weeks leading up to the race. Um, but I think that there has been a shift in, in recognizing that, it, you know, this isn't just a, a, a hiking race. Like you need to be able to run. You need to have a top end uh, to where you're not hitting it on on those big climbs. So, yeah, it, it has adapted, I believe. And you said something interesting a moment ago that you've sort of moved away from data in general with your training. You're not, you're not really as much a numbers person anymore. Is it, talk about that more. Uh, so I, I definitely still look at it. Uh, I, I pay attention to it, but, but the biggest thing is, is knowing that there are just so many variables. And as a data scientist, that is always the biggest risk. Uh, you can make a model that fits your data and seems like it's perfect uh, based on the historical data point where, you know, we have a hundred variables. And, uh, you know, my favorite example of all of this is always the baseball commentator that's like, well, this is the first time that anyone has ever hit a home run off a left-handed pitcher with two outs and three balls and a North northwest wind blowing out of left field and men on the corners in the bottom of the eighth inning. Like you have enough variables and you're always going to find a pattern. That doesn't mean though that it's a predictive pattern. That doesn't mean it's something that is useful going forward. That if that guy comes up in the same situation again, that he's gonna hit another home run. And so that's that's a danger I find in my own training data because I'm I'm one person. I'm a constantly evolving person. My, my body is changing. What is even, you know, my data from last year might not even be very applicable to me uh, as it is now. So that's, again, where it's incredibly important to be able to look at, at the body of research that's out there, the, the data, uh, the larger data sets that are out there, uh, which, to be honest, on ultra running specifically, the data sets still aren't very large. Uh, there, there needs to be more studies, uh, particular ones that involve larger cross sections of our sport, ones that study female athletes. Uh, otherwise, you're you're just overfitting. I love the reference to baseball. I, I, I'm not a data person myself, but I do enjoy reading up on sabermetrics and in basketball, what Daryl Morey does and going back to baseball, what Billy Bean did with the Oakland Athletics. Just so I understand what you're saying, are you are you saying that at this point with ultra running, our sport is it's not an appropriate sport to subject to data analysis for predictive purposes? That there's just too much out there and there's not enough of a, a number set to make any predictions about anything? I wouldn't say you can't make any predictions, but, but you have to be careful about being too exact or being too prescriptive with them, uh, especially at the level of an individual athlete. Okay. A couple things that I wanted to ask you about from your blog. You, you talk at length about this concept of game flow, and you also talk about this Goldilocks zone of difficulty, which I think are appropriate to talk about with regard to Barkley. How are you applying those two ideas to your preparation for this race? Well, 
all of the goals that I, I try to set, my, my big ones, uh, I try to to live by, by that principle. And that is essentially just this idea that if, if something is too hard, you're you're gonna you're gonna get frustrated and, and quit. You're you're gonna rage quit in, in gamer terms. If something is too easy, you're gonna get bored and you're gonna quit. So you've got to find something that is uh, just out of reach. Uh, the, the, the the most eloquent way I've, I've heard this stated was one of the, the people supported me in the UK is, is that our, uh, our our reach should exceed our grasp. And, and just the, you know, it's um, where we can currently grasp that we, we should be reaching ever so slightly farther just um just out of range of where we are and so in in my preparation um in my training in the race itself i'm i'm constantly trying to just push myself just past what, what i know i can do and and see if there's more there see if there's more i can get out of my body out of my mind uh and and go from there if i can then keep reaching, go a little bit farther. And actually I, I wrote based off that answer, I, I wrote this, this comment down that you had maybe two or three years ago, you said, that's part of the beauty of Barkley. It's actually an amazing opportunity to see just how far you can possibly reach if you aim too high. And when I read that, and then based off what you just said there, it made me wonder, um, in training for this race, in racing this race over the past seven to eight years, how has your, um, how has your risk distribution changed? Like, are you are you now taking on more risk in this race because you already are a finisher, or how, how do you think about all that? Yeah, that's that's, that's a good question. Because uh, in any of these races we do, I mean, everything to, you know, down to the five k, you can go out hard, uh, and you're either going to have the race of your life or you're going to blow up and DNF or, or limp across the line. And that's sort of the same thing here in Barkley. You might you might go out hard hoping for a finish, and as a result, you you blow up and, and don't finish a loop. So, I've gained confidence over the years in Barkley. I've gained confidence in my own physical abilities and mental abilities. I've also become more experienced at the course with other uh, aspects of uh, th that are needed in order to get a finish. So, if anything, I would say that I've become less risky because I don't need to go out there and just out of the gate, go out like a racehorse and in order to hope to finish. Uh, I, I can, I believe, play it more conservatively now, take on less risk and still uh, get a win. So as where before I, I might have been saying, Okay, I, I, I need to target uh, this speed, and best case scenario, I'm going to hit 57 hours for a finish. Worst case scenario, I'm, I'm going to blow up and, and lump, lump up to the gate at, at 65 hours. Whereas now I might say, okay, I'm just going to aim for 58. And worst case, maybe I lump up to the gate at 62. There's, there's you know, my, my best case scenario isn't, isn't as good but I'm going to finish more often uh, with that approach. Quick break to give you another discount code. This episode is also brought to you by HVMN. 
HVMN are my choice for exogenous ketones. Exogenous ketones have been taking the pro-cycling world by storm in recent years, used by many of the top teams at the Tour de France, for example, and I don't think it will be very long before they take ultra running by storm as well. I've been using them since learning about them at the Havelina 100 last year. They've become a part of my daily routine to support energy and focus, both for this podcast and for the training and racing I do. So yeah, for the remainder of 2023, my nutrition plan will be both high carbohydrate and high ketone. And for the latter, HVMN will be my product of choice. So if you're interested in trying them out yourself, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout on their website for 20% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the conversation. What makes you return to this race year after year, especially in the years since you became a finisher? That's changed a bit in the past few years. The the first time I tried it, so I finished in 2017. Uh, I, I crewed a couple people in 2018. In 2019, I decided I wanted to give it another go to, to see what it was like. Uh, I didn't really have any strong uh feelings one way or the other going into it. I just wanted to see what it was like to try to run it as a finisher. And I found out um, that the fire was not there. Uh, I was in the lead two loops in uh, after two loops. And I, I knew what was coming. I knew what it would take to finish from that point. And I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to put myself through that. And I just, I stopped. Um, in the time since then, uh, I regained my motivation to do the race. And, and again, it was, whereas those early races were, I think, largely motivated out of a fear of not finishing. You know, I, I have to finish. Like, this is what I have to do. What happens if I don't? Uh, just this immense stress and, and pressure and, and anxiety uh, going into that. Uh, you know, essentially a whip behind me. I, I now have the, the carrot on a stick in, in front of me, and I'm I'm not anxious about the race. I'm not stressed about it. it. The training doesn't consume my life or affect my family in any negative way, and I just enjoy going out there and I enjoy seeing what I can do. I'm very much motivated to finish, as as we just saw, and so I have that within me. Um, but it's it's a very different approach, and I I really, especially in the types of conditions that we had this year, it's largely type one fun out there for me. I know most people think I'm I'm crazy that it's this <laughs> you know masochistic suffer fest out there, but like I'm hanging out with my friends, running through the woods in the mountains I love, and it's great. This is a bit of a weird question, but I got to ask. Um, since you're a finisher, since you already have a finish under your belt, do you have any envy for the people that are still trying to accomplish that original goal? Or is there enough novelty and wonder associated with your own objectives that um, you're still kind of tunnel visioned in that respect? That's like after you watch one of your favorite movies and you say, oh man, I wish I could watch that again for the first time. <laughs> uh, and yeah, there's some truth to that, but no, I, I don't miss the feeling and the mindset that I had in those first years before I finished. 
I very much enjoy not having the pressure of trying to get my first finish. And I feel that I'm, I'm able to still share some of that wonder and some of that novelty of the race with the people that, that are coming out there. And so that's, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm having my cake and eating it too there because I'm, I'm having fun. There's still novel aspects of the race to me, different conditions, course changes, uh, different people out there with me. But I'm also helping these people who are doing this for the first time uh, or who are still trying to finish. And I'm, I'm a, a little bit getting to see that experience th through their eyes. And, and that's, that's awesome to, to be a part of that and to get to share that without the downside of the, the pressure of not finishing. A couple of questions I want to ask off that, but I want to reference one other quote from your blog that I wrote down. Um, there's an interesting line of questioning you present. You say, quote, at some point, you have to ask yourself, which would you rather do? Would you rather enjoy a string of mildly fulfilling successes, or would you rather reach for something greater, knowing that you might fall short and fail, but at the very least, knowing you got as close as possible and became the best version of yourself in the process, end quote. And that interests me in this moment because I've been talking with a lot of guests lately about how much internal dialogue we have in this context and how much we think about sort of our narrative arcs during our time in the sport. And I guess what I'm wondering here, and I do want to bring it back to Barkley in a second, but do you think most folks in our sport, or at least most professional athletes, are self-aware about the level of challenge that they're taking on and, and deliberately thinking about like you do? I think most of them at that level uh, probably are. And it's a, it's a risk-reward trade-off that's, that's different for everyone. Uh, it, you know, for, for some people, I, I'm not saying there's, there's legitimately one best answer here for everyone. I very much enjoy just going out there and, and trying to reach as, as far as I can. And if that means that I fail, then so be it. Uh, if it's, you know, people that are out there trying to, um, especially professional athletes and, and the road running world who have contracts and they're making their living from this. And uh, they very much need to uh, avoid not failing all the time. Uh, and, and they need to show some steady progression. It's a very different story for them. Whereas me, I, I don't mind. I go out there and I, I put out everything that I can. I come away from it knowing what I did, knowing what I've accomplished and knowing what I've learned. And, and that's enough for me. And, and if that is externally viewed as a failure, then so be it. I, I don't, don't care, to be honest. This is crazy to consider, but I feel like we have to consider it because you're now a two-time finisher. Is there ever a scenario where Barkley becomes a string of mildly fulfilling successes for you? <laughs> that, that depends a lot on, on how, how Laz views me finishing. I think, uh, you know, if I if I go back and finish next year and I go back and finish the year after that, wh what does he do? Does does he continue to make it harder and harder and harder? Or does he kind of say, well, that's John finishing again. John is above the bar that I want to set at this point, And um, I'm going to leave it where it is. And uh, that's that's a tough one to know. And, and that's. That's not to say that I'm 
I'm the best that there can be at, at the Barclay by any means whatsoever. Uh, but there is a lot to be said for gaining that experience and gaining that confidence. Um, and even even beyond that, though, it, it will, there will always be dependencies on on the weather. You know, if, if if we have weather like we had this year, every year, then I would say the scenario you just described is much more plausible. Uh, but more realistically, there's there's going to be a lot of volatility in the weather and, and a lot of bad years with bad conditions as well. I got to bring up another sports reference for this question. You mentioned baseball, so I feel like you might get it. Did you ever play Madden, the football game, back in the day? Yeah, I, I did. It's been a while. Okay. Yeah. So like Madden 07, Madden 08 was my jam. But do you remember in Madden how you could create a player from scratch? Yep. Okay. Imagine you could do it for trail running. And my question to you, how are you building this athlete specifically for Barkley? What are their attributes knowing that you have to save a certain amount of you know percentage for each one? Yeah, I've I've thought about this myself a lot of times uh, in terms of how I'm built and what I think my own strengths are, uh, and I I believe that I'm I'm pretty well distributed uh, across most skills that that you would consider relevant to ultra running. My my weaknesses are my stomach and altitude. Uh, altitude isn't an issue at Barclay. So, you know, we can, we can leave that one out of the bucket if we're building this, this perfect athlete for it. Uh, otherwise I would say that you need a basic level of navigation skill. Again, this is not an orienteering event. This is not like take a compass heading of 140 degrees and walk 563 meters in that direction over all terrain. And, there's the spot, you know, you're following the ridge line, you're going along the creek, you're going with the terrain. You need to be able to go, you know, oh, I'm going to go down the southwest spur and not the southeast spur. And you do that and, and you're good. So you have to have that basic uh, level of, of navigation skill. You have to be able to manage nutrition and sleep deprivation. Um, you have to be able to deal with terrible conditions. Uh, you know, if, if we were doing low, medium, high for all of these, I would put the dealing with terrible conditions in the medium box. Um, just being able to adapt and respond to, to anything the race throws at you as, as far as weather or, or other unforeseen obstacles. And then I would take whatever's left and, and toss it in the speed and strength bucket. Because, you know, all of those other things, those are largely about avoiding mistakes and beyond a certain threshold it doesn't matter anymore like you avoid all the mistakes you don't need any more skill there like it's it's not adding anything the faster you are the, the better you do like that's there's no and that's that's infinite like that continues forever the faster you get the better you do the more you can absorb mistakes in, in other areas uh, so as much as, again, people like to think this isn't a running race, that's, that's something that, that you absolutely need. And I think that does largely reflect how I'm built. Um, so it does play a lot to my strengths. Uh, and you know, then I feel like you've, you've got people like Killian and Courtney where someone entered the cheat code and just gave them, you know, <laughs> filled 
filled everything and, and every skill set. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's a pretty good Barkley build. Okay. A couple of questions off that. First, in considering this build and the distribution of all those traits, how much are you allocating to intangible factors and factors related to someone's psychological disposition? Like you said, the ability to deal with tough conditions, which is, you know, that's an intangible measure. So how much are you delegating to that? Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I, I would probably put that one alongside the the speed and strength that may be slightly below it. Cause again, I feel like once you reach a certain threshold, you're able to keep pushing yourself, um, keep moving at the speed that you're capable of without making mistakes. Um, so, I mean, there I'm, I'm lumping together both the, the drive to push past the pain and the focus to not make careless mistakes, to, to let your mind wander for 30 seconds and suddenly you're on the wrong ridge line. Uh, descending into the neighboring town and getting hauled back to camp by the sheriff, like happened to, to Carl Sabo last year. So that's that's very much one that I, I think is is high up there. And again, that might be my biggest strength as an ultra runner. It's something that uh, you know, going back to childhood, is it's great that I can refer to it now as as resilience or persistence. I think that it's it's often been referred to as as stubbornness or perfectionism, and it's really the same thing, just uh, said said in positive terms rather than negative. Changing topic, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that are just related to the the culture and the media scene around Barkley. First, again, totally subjective question here, but why? what's your opinion on why Barkley gets so much more public attention than any other event in our sport right now? I think there's a lot to be said for the mystery um, and a lot to be said for so, sort of this I wish I had taken a picture of it now because I we went out for pizza after the race. Uh, Aurelian and his crew were there, and I, I asked straight up, like, why do the French love Barkley so much? Because they do. France is obsessed with this race. If you haven't seen on Twitter the welcome that Aurelian got in the Toulouse airport when he got home, go check that. Like, they pop champagne and everything. Like, he won the World Series. And his crew stood up at Alex and, and on the back of his jacket, he had this, he had this basically like French Barkley hoodie on. And there was, there was something about me because as, as a nation, we are enthralled with this romantic notion of the pursuit of impossible dreams, essentially the, the, the Don Quixote type effect. And I, I think that people are, very much uh, see an appeal to that and see a desire to have that in their own life, to have this big goal that they're pursuing that, that pushes them forward. Uh, and the other thing, I, th I think there is a bit of kind of schadenfreude uh, involved with it, of people just being amazed by, oh, look at the briar cuts on his legs and, and what he's going through. I think there's a little bit of entertainment value in that as well as, as the third piece. Do you think that 
these factors that the general public enjoys so much, they, if we wanted to, they would be easy to replicate in other events. And we're just making decisions to value some other purpose for a race or is, is Barkley truly unique? I think that, well, for me, Barkley is unique because of where it is uh, and, and the meaning associated with that for me. But I very much, and this is something I, I thought about a lot while I was out there this year, actually, was like, you, you know, I, I get to do this and, and this is awesome. And 39 other people get to be out here doing this, but they're like, there's so many people that want to be doing this and th- they simply can't. Like the, the park rules, that there can only be 40 people. And what else can we do? Like, how can we replicate that? And part of that is is the media coverage uh is the the you know the articles and i hope my own blog posts and other things that come out of that that share these experiences and share why we're doing it and what we learn about it but beyond that i i very much think that this this concept can be replicated not just in terms of like hey, here's this looped race that's super hard and not many people can finish, but just connecting each person's individual passions to a goal that's just out of their reach, that's that's driving them forward, whether that's running or like music or baking anything that someone loves doing, like use that passion to drive you to try to do impossible things hmm. and eventually you're going to be able to do things that that you had never imagined before and i would love to see if there's some sort of like systematic way that we can take this template and copy and paste it over and over again to allow more people to experience this in in whatever domain it happens to be when i look at what you're doing and when i look at what anybody at the Barclays doing the immediate association that comes to mind is you're deliberately testing your own limits. And there's something incredibly noble in that. And it it just makes sense. Like that's, it's a worthwhile endeavor purely because you're deciding to go and test your limits in that arena. And, And I wanted to preface that because I think when a lot of people are watching the coverage on Twitter and YouTube, et cetera, the first words that come to mind when they describe what you're doing is that's crazy and that's insane, et cetera. And I, do you have any opinion on why people revert to those terms as, as opposed to more positive, uplifting terminology for what you're doing? You see, I don't necessarily think all those terms are negative. <laughs> uh, it, you know, to, to me, crazy is, is outside the norm, and, and I'm good with that. And, and I think that and I, I say this as an office worker myself, but, you know, as, as humans, I think it's more crazy to be sitting behind a desk all day, every day, and to not get out and experience these wild places and uh, have these adventures. And the, the, one, the one description that, that does get me a bit is when people call it uh, a masochistic event. And there's, you know, there's the year I first year I finished the Inquirer did an article. It's called the Masochist's Marathon. And, and that implies that there's some pleasure in the pain, some pleasure in suffering. 
and that's not the case at all. There's, there's pleasure in trying to overcome the obstacles that cause the suffering. Mm. And to that extent, we all need more of that. You know, in the original Netflix documentary, uh, Julian Jameson, the guy that's crewed me a couple times, said, "You know, I think we could all use more more pain and suffering in our lives." And we're we're very fortunate. Most of us, I have to say, most of us, because unfortunately, there are still people that are, are facing terrible situations uh, every day. But like, I don't have to get chased by a lion. I don't have to run down my meal each evening. I'm not in a war zone. I'm never really fearing for my life. My family is safe. I work a cushy job behind yeah. a desk inside, sheltered from the elements. There's never this sort of like, I'm at the edge and I have to get this done in order to survive. We never have to experience that anymore in most parts of society and putting ourselves out there to where we truly are at our limits, where we are stripped down and nothing else matters other than, you know, I've got to get this done. I've got to get up this hill. I've got to stay warm. Yeah. <laughs> like that is where the growth happens. And that is where I learn what I'm made of. And I come out of the race knowing that, and that applies to my life at work, that applies to my family life and lessons I can pass on to my kids. And that's the real value to me of doing these sorts of things and where I think it can be, you know, hopefully copy pasted uh, to, to more events than Barclay to where there's, there's more than just 40 people a year doing this. Yeah. On that, on that masochism theme. And I think I could probably pick a lot of holes in this theory, but I have wondered at times, are the people that choose to do this sport, the people that have been divorced from, you know, forced suffering for the longest period of time, and they're ready to, to go through it again, like the people that choose elective suffering via ultra running. I think you could probably pick a lot of holes in that theory, but um, I think for some people, it, it could be true. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there is definitely some, some truth to that. Um, there are also, uh, you know, a, a lot of people in our sport that they're, they're former addicts or, or they're recovering yep. from some really tough life situations, uh, severe depression, other issues that they've come through and, and ultra running really helps them with that uh, and, and uplifts them. So I think the sport does serve multiple purposes and, and multiple backgrounds. But I do think that there is uh, a segment of that population that, you know, in general, we've had pretty good lives and we're we're out there seeking something that, uh, it, you know, really forces us to to improve ourselves, really puts us in a cauldron and and forges something better. One other thing that I was curious to get your opinion on especially in this Netflix YouTube era where the event has just received more scrutiny, more attention, more fans, et cetera, has the integrity of the start and finish of that race stayed the same or has it, has it changed in the sense that there's like more media people there now, somehow fans have gotten there, there's more crew like, or has it pretty much stayed the same in your seven to eight years involved with the event? 
Uh, I think that it has it has done a really good job, honestly, uh, of of trying to walk this line of preserving the experience for the people that are out there and their integrity of the race, while also again providing this window into these experiences and into the value of going out to wild places and pursuing challenges like this. And part of that is actually, I think that um, like the first year that I did it, uh, there there were some media crews there. And I remember coming in from my third loop when just like, this was really early for me in, in ultra running and my family hadn't been exposed to it before. And I was looking like death and, and they were all for my wife, my dad, they were there, they were freaking out. And this film crew is coming with like a camera right up in my face the, the whole time. And like, I've never been so close to taking a camera and just tossing it in the creek as, as far as I could. And, and so the, the early days for me, there wasn't as much of a presence there, but it was also much more the wild west around that presence. So there's, there's been kind of this controlled release of, of allowing a bit more media to be there, uh, but much better guidelines around uh, their, their behavior and what's expected of them uh, during that time. I want to get your take on one more Barkley topic before we finish on another subject that I'm fascinated to discuss with you. I'll preface this by saying you are not in any way, shape or form a spokesperson for the race, but anytime a race like Barkley gets big, it starts trending on Twitter, it invites criticism. I, I did see this article in some tweets out there that showed photos of uh, like a Confederate flag license plate there at the, at the race start and finish. And there was some other you know, critiques around the exclusivity of the race. When you saw that stuff, when you read that stuff, what came to mind for you and, and, and what's your take on all that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's rough. Um, that's rough. Anytime we do something like this, you know, even like doing Hard Rock last year, and there's so much criticism around the lottery of that and, you know, it being an old boys club and, and whatnot. And, you know, you, you go and you do the race and you think, oh, geez, like, should I not be doing this? Should I not be in? There's this kind of sense of, of guilt at, at that part of it. For me, um, and, and well, so I'll I'll circle circle back to this sure. this yeah. whole yeah. Um, thing here. I, I know that there was a Confederate flag uh, license plate at least uh, at one point. Um, I, I asked Laz about that, and he said, "Yeah, that's something that." Uh, we had 30 years ago that um, someone sent in to kind of poke fun at the Yankees at the race. There, there was uh, that was back in the 80s, and they had this kind of regional joke going back and forth. Um, and no one, there was no coverage at the time, so uh, it was an inside joke, and only people there saw it. Uh, that symbol uh, has our understanding of that symbol has changed over time. I don't want to say the symbol itself has changed over time because it's always meant horrible things to certain sections of the population. And I believe that there are some people that didn't understand that it meant horrible things to certain sections of the population. It was a, a benign, ubiquitous symbol that was, you know, it's, it's on, I think it might still be on 
a couple of state flags. Uh, I, I know it was for, for a while. And so, yeah, that's, um, that doesn't mean that that was okay at, at the time. But to me, the important thing is, is progress and the race and Les coming to an understanding of what that has meant um, and, and removing it. And, and, you know, to me, like, and the same with Hard Rock, like they're making honest steps to, to make the lottery better, to improve how they're letting people into the race. And if we're not going to allow for that progress, if we're not going to allow people to change and to improve and better themselves and, and welcome them uh, with open arms when they make that change, then, then what hope do we have of, of other people following suit? And, and really, what was the goal of the criticism to begin with? If the goal was not to instigate change, if the goal was not to be, bring about progress, then was, was the only purpose to try to kind of rain on someone else's parade or, or make yourself feel better by making someone else feel worse? I, I, I don't know. So yeah, that, that was... That was not okay. Um, I'll, I'll be clear about that. That was not okay. That was never okay. I think that there was an ignorance about that not being okay. That ignorance was corrected. And as a result, the presence of that plate has been corrected. And I fully expect that to, to never see that at the race again. Um, there was also an issue last year or a few years ago uh, i know where there was a there was a blm post uh, removed from uh, a, a forum of, of lazes on facebook and uh, there was a big controversy about that to be honest I, I don't know all the details i my understanding was that the responses were becoming uh, too were becoming qu quite quite bad uh, in terms of there, there being uh, some very nasty things said towards the original poster. Um, and so the, the decision was made to just remove all political posts from the forum of any way whatsoever. And I can definitely see the perception that, you know, it would have been better to address the individual comments to punish those individual people uh, I, I definitely see that perspective, and I think that in an ideal world, that's probably correct. But there, there's simply this was a race with like fifteen thousand something people, and there simply were not the staff resources to be able to to moderate every comment that that came in. So, yeah, again, something something better could have probably been done there. I, I agree with that. But this is, again, is where I say progress over perfection. Like if we're not going to let ourselves to take one step forward at a time and instead expect us to just leap across a giant chasm to a perfect outcome, I, I don't think that that's, that's gonna end well. Um, the last point is that you mentioned the exclusivity. I. That's easy, I think, for a race that only allows 40 people a year to, to have that perception. Like there's there's no way around that. But it's not a it's not an artificial exclusivity. It's not like it's a club and they only let certain people in. It's it's like the park is a sensitive area ecologically. 
that's all that is allowed each year in the agreement with the park. That's all that can fit in the campground uh, at the start finish. And I know that Laz does his very best uh, to create a, a diverse field, to give preference to people that come from demographics that have not seen success at the race before. If you're from a country or a demographic uh, that, that has not finished before and you have legit credentials that give you even the slightest possibility of finishing, you're going to get in the race and you're going to get in the race quick. Um, I haven't seen that happen yet. If, if anyone who feels they fit that description has applied and not gotten in, please let me know. Uh, please correct me on that. But I have seen time and time again uh, people coming from these demographics that uh, have not finished before uh, that, you know, that they get in. Laz wants that chance to be there. He doesn't enjoy seeing people DNF. What he really enjoys seeing is people overcoming uh, a seemingly impossible challenge in order to, to reach true success. And he wants to see that for everyone out there, and including women at the race, uh, people from different countries, people from dif different ethnic groups. Uh, he, he loves nothing more than to see that. Admittedly, the only thing I've ever been publicly up in arms about was the fact that Joe McConaughey string bean had not yet had a chance to run the Barkley. It was finally done this year. I, I always thought that he had a, a good running chance. I guess he did a fun run this year, which is great. Yeah. And he did that on uh, not very good training right. uh, after an Achilles in, injury at, at Bandera. So I, I really look forward to, uh, to what he does next year. I will say as a slight caveat, um, what I just mentioned so that the race isn't actually limited to 40 people. That's about how many can fit in the campground. The agreement with the park is an expected number of loops per year. Mm. So if Laz were to just pull a field of all elite athletes that are all expected to do fun runs, then the field might only be 20 people because it would be the same number of expected loops. So I do know a few examples of, um, uh, you're not supposed to out anyone who has applied to Barclay, but um, there was one person in particular this year that was a, uh, he is one of the strongest ultra runners out there. Uh, incredible records set races one, uh, not from one of these underrepresented demographics uh, or one that has not finished the race before. And he did not get in this year, which I was surprised by, but he is, he was on the wait list and, you know, I expect if he applies again next year, he'll, uh, he'll get in and, and that'll be exciting to see. Last thing that I want to talk to you about before we close up, and this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your time is the Appalachian Trail. This is one of my absolute favorite topics to discuss in this podcast. I think it's one of the coolest FKTs in our sport. Um, and I heard through the grapevine that you are interested in going after this FKT one day. I know that um, the Appalachian Mountains are essentially your, your childhood backyard, but what are the other reasons why you're so attracted to this? And is there a timeline for when you're going to start making this your white whale like Barkley was? 
Well, I'm from the Appalachian Mountains, you hear, and then the Appalachians <laughs> them up north. <laughs> I'm from Maine. We call it story. Appalachian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, that's uh, it has kind of been the holy grail for me of, of FKTs for a while. It's, uh, you know, just an unbelievable trail. Uh, runs right along up the border between Tennessee and North Carolina, the two states where I've, I've spent most of my life. I've set a couple of FKTs on sections of the Appalachian Trail. Um, and it is, it's really a matter of being able to get the time for it, to be honest. Uh, so that depends largely on, on my career and how that progresses. Uh, cause you know, even, even at record speed, that's, that's a month and a half, uh, that, that you've got to have dedicated towards that. And, and not only in terms of my career, but in terms of family. And I, I would very much want them uh, to be a part of that uh, rather than just, you know, peace, kids. I'll see you in a couple months. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's it's there. I think I've still got a, a while uh, to, to be able to, to take a crack at that. And uh, it... Yeah, if 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 I ever have another year like this, where you know I don't get into hard rock, I don't get into western states, and right now my, my summer is a little bit open. Uh, if if I were in a, a a better spot where I could take that much time away from my career, um, then then I would certainly give it a shot. Well, because to me. And to use a cycling reference, the Appalachian Trail FKT, it's effectively a stage race, right? It's a 45-day stage race. And from what I know about cycling, that those stage races, it's those super young guys that can withstand the toll. They stand to benefit the best. What, in your opinion, is the age limit for this undertaking? Like, how, What kind of window are you going to give yourself? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that, that you would uh, compare it to a stage race, and, and that's definitely a, a valid point. I, I've I've always kind of viewed the, the things that I have a preference for doing, uh, these sort of multi-day events, uh, as, as things where I have a solid decade at least left. Uh, Damien Hall, uh, who was out there with me for nearly four loops at Barclay and who I had some fun back and forths with in the UK uh, on FKTs. I believe he's, he's 47 this year. Uh, I'm, I'm 38. You look at races like Tour de Jean, there are people in their 50s that are getting on the podium there. Uh, and, and so, whereas you look at like Bandera, and I'm, I'm the old geezer out there. Like, you know, I, I think the next person that was my age or older was like an hour and a half behind me or, or something. So I, I think that that is, is in my favor. I, I think that also... I, I've never done a stage race because I've always felt that like when I choose to sleep and eat should be part of the race and part of the strategy itself uh, rather than a prescribed thing. And also I don't want to just like sit around and wait. I want to keep on and and get on with it. Um, But I, I do think that I seem to do quite well at that sort of thing. I've been, um, I still don't quite know what what to make of this, but this this seems to be a common pattern for me after races like Barkley and Hard Rock, the the Wainwrights, which took five and a half days, 
I'm just pulling up now. I've, I've started in the past year using one of those little whoop recovery bands that like, you know, measures your heart rate variability, your resting heart rate and all this other stuff to give you like a recovery score. And so the day after Barkley, I put it on and I was, I was at 1% recovery. Just, I was done. There's nothing left. I, I don't think it goes to zero. So I'm, I'm at rock bottom. The next day, 6%. Yeah, it's still pretty rough. Day after that, 91%. My heart rate variability is like back up through the roof. Resting heart rate's good. Like I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's something unique with my physiology. That's something that, you know, circling back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about data, I would love to give myself up as a test subject. Like someone, someone figure out what it is. Is there something unique about my physiology? Is there something unique about my approach to these things? Is it all mental? I don't know. But like, I, I would love to know if not for myself, for, for other people. Uh, elite level bounce back ability. <laughs> Maybe so. So, you know, I, I like to think that would help me on something like the AT, uh, whether that remains to be true. Uh, I don't know, but at the least it should be a, a nice confidence boosting placebo effect for me. A couple more questions. And then I, I, I promise we didn't hold you for too long, but cause no, this is so fascinating to me. Um, You've said in other projects you've done with like Barkley that when you make your first attempt on it, there's an understanding that it's not really possible for your current self, but for some future version of yourself, it is within the realm of possibility and, and you will be able to accomplish it. Do you take the same view with the Appalachian Trail where it's kind of like that whole Carl Meltzer approach where like maybe your first year you're you're kind of out there just getting the lay of the land. Then you come back in year two and then maybe in year three, you finally nail it. Or because it's such uh, a sacrificial project where you're taking like six weeks of your whole life to do it, you have to get it on that first time or it's bust. Yeah. I would, I would certainly hope that, that I'm, uh, that I'm not taking multiple attempts at that because it is such a, a huge uh, investment of time. It's, and you know, all these other things that I've done, it's never been my intention to do them multiple times. Uh, it's been the way that it worked out for one, one reason or another. And I, I believe it's very difficult to get your best effort on your very first attempt at something. You know, it took me three finish, three attempts to finish Barkley. It took me two attempts to get my record back on the Penine way and get a performance that I was happy with took me two attempts on the Wainwrights. Uh, the first time I had to stop halfway through. Um, the second time around, I had an overall better run anyway. So like, I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I had to stop that first time or else I might not have attempted uh, a second time and, and improved it by as much as I did. Took me three times to qualify for Boston. Took me two or three times to qualify for Kona. Um, you know, I'm sure there are many more examples. I still haven't had something I'm happy with at Tortoisean or at Hard Rock. Uh, so I, I love that this sport gives us so many opportunities for improvement. There are so many variables. It's almost impossible to have a perfect race, to just get to the end and say, that was it. I can't do any better ever. I'm done. 
and and so you know i think that with something like the at i could get to the finish and and say yeah i could do a bit better and i still feel that way about the penine way and about the wainwrights I, I can do better there's a little bit more left in me but you know there's like a five to ten percent chance that I could do better, and the the much larger probability is that I don't do better, and I spend another enormous investment of my time, both in terms of the event and the training leading up to it, uh, in in order to really not get anything. Whereas otherwise, you know, I could turn my attention to something else. Uh, enjoy a new experience and and have complete confidence that I'm I'm going to do better because I, I haven't done it to, to be to begin with. Is there an over under fifty percent chance that you will be lining up for the Appalachian Trail in the next three years? I, I certainly hope over. Um, you know that's uh, Again, it, it depends on so much on, on how our company does and, and how my career goes and, and whether I get myself really to a point of, of financial freedom where I, I feel comfortable taking that time to, to do that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 38 this year. The, the idea has been stuck in my head for quite a while that, man, it would be really, really cool to be like, 40 years old and try to go for under 40 days on the, the Appalachian trail. <laughs> but you would aim for a sub 40 days. That's such a cool number. It's uh, it is, you, you know, that's, that's one of those, uh, I enjoy doing these things and, and aiming for, you know, the Penine way got below 60 hours. Um, the Wainwrights I, I aimed for under five days. Couldn't, couldn't quite get there. Um, so, you know, it's not something I'm saying I could do with certainty. I think it would be a very motivating goal to aim for. And if that means that, again, I, you know, finish it in 41 days, uh, that's that's perfectly fine. I would much rather set a goal that I fall just short of than set a goal that I I know I can get and just kind of get it and not have the motivation to push farther. Would you go north or south? You know, I, I think that, that I'd have to stick with, with south to north. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, just the, um, aesthetically, that's, that's how I've always viewed the trail. Awesome. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you being here today. Um, wishing you the best in your recovery and your next endeavor. We'll make sure to link to all of your relevant social media in the show notes. Any final thoughts or calls to action for the listeners before we go? No, that was, uh, it was a great conversation. And, and again, I just encourage people to, to get out there and uh, pursue things that you might fail at. Don't, don't be scared of that. And, and don't be scared of, of getting out and, doing your own thing and pursuing your own passion, whatever motivates you uh, to, to really reach as far as you can. Don't limit yourself to, to what's already there. If, if you feel uh, you, you can't, uh, that, that there's nothing that fits your goals or fits your passion, or there's an event that you're not able to, to get into, you know, make your own, get, get, get out and, and do it. 
Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.